Roy, how are you doing? I'm standing in the churchyard of the church in the next village among really tall grass some of it up to my shoulders I'm also very pleased to tell you that the church clock here has been fixed. I'm on a walk today um, around the village's hay meadows because in the last few days they've started to be mowed because this is haymaking time. My name's Melissa Harrison. And I'm a novelist and nature writer who lives in rural Suffolk. Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 14 of Stop and Light of Things. meadow that hasn't yet been cut and as well as that blackbird that's really annoyed by me I'm hoping you can hear the differing sounds of grasshoppers all around me the sound they make is called stridulation and they make it by rubbing their legs on their wing cases. It's mostly the males that do it. The females can do it, but not really, so as you'd notice. And they've got ears in their bums. They're very, very ancient beings. They've been around since the early Triassic period, which I'm sure you know is 250 million years ago. The main ones we've got here are the common green grasshopper, field grasshoppers, which are the multicoloured ones. They come in yellow and green and pink and brown, even purple. And uh, the meadow grasshopper, which is the only one that can't fly. John Clare, the peasant poet, Describe their fretting song. And Alice Oswald, who to me is the most important living writer in these islands, wrote the rapid whisper of a grasshopper scraping back and forth as if working at rust. 
and listening to the grasshoppers and wondering why Gilbert White mentions them so infrequently and whether that means there were fewer of them around those days. It's possible because they have expanded their range um, with climate change. It seems surprising to me. What he's more keen on is the grasshopper lark, which we now call the grasshopper warbler, which makes a very high wheeling sound like a grasshopper. I'm not sure I could actually pick it out, but certainly proper birders can. Anyway, here are Gilbert's diary entries from today, July the 6th. July the 6th, 1769. Finished my hayrick consisting of about seven tons without a drop of rain. July the 6th, 1773. All vegetation in gardens seems to stand still. July the 6th, 1774. Farmer Canning ploughs with two teams of asses, one in the morning and one in the afternoon. At night these asses are folded on the fallows and in the winter they are kept in a straw yard where they make dung. July the 6th, 1775. Wasps begin to come. July the 6th, 1777. Birds are very voracious in their squab state, as appears from the consequences of eating which they eject from their nests in marvellous quantities. As they arrive so rapidly at their full maturity, much nutrition must necessarily be wanted. July the 6th, 1781. Brisk gale. The wheat in large fields undulates before the gale in a most amusing manner. July the 6th, 1783. Some young martins come out of their nest over the garden door. This nest was built in 1777 and has been used ever since. As the summer has been dry and we have drawn much water for the garden, I caused my well to be plumbed and found we have yet 13 feet of water. July the 6th, 1785. Some young swifts seem to be out. They settle on and cling to the walls of houses and seem to be at a loss where to go, are perhaps looking for their nest. July the 6th, 1792. Mr. Evely says that the churring of a fern owl is like the noise of a razor grinder's wheel. I'm just pausing to try and record for you the song of the greenfinch which is a sort of whinge. There you go. That descending wheeze. They do have a couple of other sounds. They have a twittering call they make in flight and they've also got a two-note call which we're not going to go into because, frankly, chiff-chaffs and great tits and let's not confuse ourselves. But that's the one to listen out for. It will tell you you've got a greenfinch in your garden. And frankly, he's very disappointed in you. Right, enough wheezing. On we go. Right, I'm emerging from a little strip of wood to one of the largest of the meadows that surround the village. 
as I'm sure you know, a meadow is a field that's used to grow a hay crop. So grass is grown and then harvested at this time of year, so well before the arable harvest. Um, and it's either baled as dry hay for animal feed or it might be wrapped um, in black plastic to make haylage or silage. This one I watched being mowed about six days ago, maybe a week ago. Um, and it's, it's strange because it looks so beautiful when it's tall. And it's such a joy to walk through and you always have a little moment of sadness when you see it being cut. But that's what it's for. That's what a meadow is for. So it's fulfilling its purpose. And the grass will continue to grow and there might well be a second crop later in the year. I came this way yesterday and had a chat with the farmer on his tractor, which I didn't record because manners. But he told me a lovely thing, which was that the piece of equipment he was dragging behind the tractor, which was fluffing up um, the grass and leaving it in windrows for the baler to, to wrap, um, was called a woofler. I enjoyed that very much. Right. We go through the gate. And cross the field. You cross it um, on a, it's a right of way, it's a very sort of slim desire path right the way through the centre of the meadow. And it's also the edge of a badger territory, this path, because at regular intervals, all along it are little piles of budger poo, which at the moment are full of cherry stones um, because there's some wild cherries here in the woods and the badgers walk around underneath them snuffling up all the delicious cherries. It's quite interesting because cherries are in season in the shops right now, so when I walk to the village shop, I'm buying cherries as well. So me and the badger are doing the same thing. That sounds like a nearby meadow being mowed. Might go and try and work out where that is. Well, I tried really hard to catch up with the mower. I even broke into a gentle jog. Um, but I've come to the next meadow I wanted to look at and discovered that um, I've just missed it and it's been mown, <laughs> the tractor's gone. The edge here, um, there's a sort of border around it near the hedge that um, is still tall, but the main section has been mowed and the smell is amazing. And there are swallows hawking and flickering really low over it because um, I imagine all of the insects that were in the tall grass um, are flying or hopping or trying to get somewhere and the swallows are feasting on them. And there's a goldfinch in the trees behind me. Can you hear it? Of course, grasshoppers aren't just creatures of the countryside. They're found in cities too, in back gardens and um, playing fields, commons and parks. Um, as I noted here in my Times Nature notebook from 
July 2015. Where the grass has been allowed to grow long on Tooting Common, it is suddenly abuzz with Orthoptera. We have 27 native grasshoppers, crickets and springtails in the UK, with more and more species now making a home in London and the southeast as rising global temperatures allow them to breed and slowly extend their range. Despite how loud they sound, the grasshoppers on the common are difficult to spot. As soon as I look in their direction, it seems, they still their zithers. If I see one clinging to a stem, it dematerialises the second I approach. Yet National Biodiversity Network records show that 17 species have been reported on the common, including several non-natives like Rosal's bush cricket. Disappointingly, I've only seen field and meadow grasshoppers so far. As a rough guide, crickets differ from grasshoppers in having long antennae and being mainly nocturnal. Last summer, one stridulated loudly on every warm, dry night from the tangled front garden of a house on my street, a reminder of how important even small gardens can be. Probably a dark bush cricket, although I didn't think it wise to investigate, its song lent my evening dog walks a beguilingly subtropical air. On Wednesday at about five o'clock, I heard a blackbird in full song in Covent Garden. It was a warm afternoon and Neil Street was thronged with shoppers and tourists. From Long Acre and Seven Dials came the sound of taxis and the ding of pedicabs' bells. And poured over it all was that lovely liquid warble, full-throated and rich, a male blackbird declaring that the area was his territory and his alone. It stopped me in my tracks. I wonder where his nest is. One of the shrubs in Odom's Walk or a tree that flanks the Actors' Church, St Paul's? I wonder if he and his mate have successfully reared chicks this year. West End birds, canny and street smart. Perhaps they're on to their second or even third brood. I hope so. Streets without birds are a wretched and lifeless thing. Much of the moment's significance came from knowing that soon all our blackbirds will fall silent until next spring. The brevity of the period in which they sing seems to intensify their song's beauty, a reminder that despite all the conveniences of city living, some seasonal events must be enjoyed in the moment, or not at all. This is more like it. I found a fragment um, of meadow that hasn't yet been mown and I'm sitting among the really tall stems of grass which are over my head. It's quite a sultry day, sort of overcast but warm, muggy. Um, and I'm looking at all of the insects on the, on the stems. What would be amazing would be to find a little harvest mouse nest, like a little tennis ball made of grass, but... I think that's unlikely. It's funny sitting here and looking and trying to see something. Your eyes slowly become attuned to the thing that you're looking for. But it takes a while. Once it's happened, though, it's really hard to kind of undo I'm sure you'll know if you've ever had the experience of 
I don't know, looking for particular pebbles on a beach or something like that. Tova Janssen, the creator of the Moomins, but to me, more importantly, the creator, the writer of a book called The Summer Book, which is one of my most important books to me in the world, wrote, Gathering is peculiar because you see nothing but what you're looking for. If you're picking raspberries, you see only what's red. And if you're looking for bones, you see only the white. I'm sitting here looking for grasshoppers. And maybe it's because they do come in so many different colours, but they're, they're not popping out to me yet. They're all around me, I can hear them, and I can see them when they move. But they're hard to spot on the stems. When I was becoming a writer, I didn't yet know that I was becoming a writer, I don't think. I was, I was sort of going through a transformation that I didn't quite understand. One of the things I did um, in that period um, was I taught myself how to use a proper SLR camera. And I wasn't quite sure why it was important to me. And it's something I've understood more looking back at it. Because it completely changed my experience of looking. Putting a frame around something, choosing one thing over another, directing the eye. That changed my experience of the natural world and of maybe the whole world. It made me a much better noticer. It made me understand light. And it made me understand attention and focus as well. I was never brilliant at it, but there's a big difference in the pictures I took right at the beginning and the ones I took right at the end. There's definitely quite an obvious progression. That's two wood pigeons fighting that you can hear. Wow. Loads of wood pigeons fighting. Um, and I look back at that period now and I, I think it fed into writing so much. Because writing as well is about what you put a frame around. You know, the world is so full, you could write about anything and that's terrifying. You have to choose. You have to choose where you want people to look, how you want them to feel. And I think learning that through something visual rather than something literary helped me learn it in a way that was playful instead of terrifying because I wanted to write so much and I was so scared of what would happen if I couldn't. So I sort of diverted it and learnt the things that I needed to learn in another medium. And it's le never left me. I've got lazy now and I mostly take pictures with my, my phone which is disappointing. And I wish that I would push myself to take proper pictures again. But the trick of looking is still with me. Just not perhaps the grasshoppers. When it comes to looking for things, some people are much better than others. And my guest this week is Lara Maitland, author of Mudlarking, Lost and Found on the River Thames.
Lara's book is absolutely wonderful. Partly because of what she reveals about herself, slowly, in glimpses. And partly because of the attention she pays to ordinary things. It's not about treasure. It's not about high status finds. It's about the traces of ordinary lives and the traces of her own in her book. I'm standing on the foreshore of the River Thames in central London and it couldn't be a more urban environment in many ways. On my left I've got London Bridge with the red buses and the people walking across it and on my right I've got Cannon Street Bridge with the trains rumbling in and out constantly. Ever so often a helicopter will pass overhead. But down here, it's another world. It's my secret, secret world. It's my escape from all that chaos, everything that's going on in the city. It's where I come to work through my problems and reconnect with nature in the middle of the city. And I haven't been here uh, since lockdown since March so I really feel like I'm reacquainting myself with an old friend um, and it's really great to be back. Um, During lockdown the clipper service which there's a clipper just going past now um, they stopped running and it's the clippers that keep the foreshore clean so uh, until they started running on Monday the foreshore was thick with mud uh, with a bright green, almost luminous green bloom of algae that had started to grow on top of it. Um, But the clippers are slowly washing that away and I'm back to see what I can find. Um, This is one of my favourite spots. It's it's because it's in the centre of London, there's so much human activity here in the foreshore. And if you kneel down and look very, very carefully. If I just look at this little patch in front of me, I can see animal bones from domestic waste, uh, little tiny pieces of terracotta that were probably once roof tiles or bricks, um, little pieces of of bottles, uh, glass that were probably maybe beer bottles, and um, lots and lots of oyster shells. Now, oysters don't live this far up river. These are again domestic waste protein for the poor during Victorian times and um, we were even well known for our oysters in the Roman times they packed the oysters into barrels of brine and exported them to the rest of the empire. I can see chalk that was laid down for the barges to rest on and shingle which is natural to the foreshore and a sort of sand that's made up of natural sand and also tiny tiny pieces of humanity really human um, human intervention pieces of terracotta and um, tiny pieces of pottery and and wood and um, all sorts of things and underneath these stones live the tiny shrimp the freshwater shrimp that curl and slither away from me and um, I'm always accompanied by a crow there's always crows down here And uh, my crow has turned up today. Again, he follows me, hopping from stone to stone as I uh, walk slowly along the foreshore, looking for uh, 
anything I can find that will remind me of the past. So although this is a, a very urban river, it's also a reminder to the city of, of nature, of, of the weather. It's a nice, bright, open space. There's no, it's not crowded by tall buildings. The river comes and it goes twice a day and, and nothing can stop that. And it has a smell, it has that earthy, natural smell that I've really missed, actually. And today is a bit muggy. So the, it, whenever it's muggy, it condenses that smell. So it's a really lovely condensed smell of clay and algae with a faint undertone of pollution in central London that I actually, actually really like. And it's a really special place. It's my special place. It's where I come, as I say, to escape from the city. Fittingly, the poem this week is Wordsworth's composed upon Westminster Bridge, September 3rd, 1802, and it's read by my friend, the illustrator and animator, Lewis Harris. I love London, and I'm really missing it right now. Earth has not anything to show more fair. Dull would he be of soul who could pass by a sight so touching in its majesty. This city now doth, like a garment, wear the beauty of the morning, silent, bare. Ships, towers, domes, theatres and temples lie open unto the fields and to the sky, all bright and glittering in the smokeless air. Never did sun more beautifully steep in his first splendour, valley, rock or hill. Ne'er saw I, never felt a calm so deep. The river glideth at his own sweet will. Dear God, the very houses seem asleep, and all that mighty heart is lying still. I've visited all of the meadows around the village now, and I've only got the recreation ground to cross. Um, and then I'm going to walk along the lanes home. And the verges at the moment are pink with mallow and um, wild geranium, cranesbill. The early part of the year, the colour palette seems to be white, but it's changing to pink with the wildflowers now. All the meadows I've visited um, have been what's called improved. So they're sown um, every six or seven years with a mixture of grass species, um, which is, is really good to have that mixture, really good for wildlife. Um, and they're not ploughed um, because we're on very light sandy soil, and again, that's good. But they're not the ancient, unimproved, traditional hay meadows that used to be all over the country, and we've lost 97% of them since the Second World War. And part of the reason for that is that we moved from horsepower to tractor and we had less need of them. And partly um, it's because more efficient farming methods came in, including um, silage. And if you're a farmer and you need to feed your animals through the winter and you're operating on almost no profit margin and someone comes along and says, look, you can sow this um, Italian 
ryegrass mixture, which is really incredibly productive. And you can wrap it for winter and you can keep it and it won't spoil and it will save you huge amounts of money and, and be much more reliable. Of course you're going to do it, especially at a time after the Second World War when um, the government and, and the public were calling on farmers to become a lot more productive um, so the nation could be fed. Um, you know, people had not forgotten the, the blockades and the fact that, you know, we'd had rationing for so long. So farmers were told to, um, to be a, a lot more productive, to plough up um, unproductive bits of land and use them more efficiently and to get rid of hedgerows and things like that, which is what they did. And, um, and I can't blame them for it at all especially as at the time nobody realised the importance for wildlife of these ancient, unimproved meadows. And these were grasslands that were never ploughed and never reseeded and never fertilised. And they had an incredible diversity of species. And some of the species um, have very deep roots, so they pull up all sorts of interesting and important minerals from deep in the soil that things like shallow-rooted ryegrass can't do. And I know of um, a farm that's been um, it's been bought by the Wildlife Trust in uh, Herefordshire, and it had been farmed by old methods, just in a family for generations and generations, and it had these meadows that just hadn't been touched. And um, the Wildlife Trusts are um, selling the hay from those meadows to feed racehorses because it's so high in minerals. And they also turn out sheep to graze it. And when the sheep are on it, they ignore their mineral licks because they don't need them. And here, <laughs> that's lovely, I'm just emerging onto the recreation ground, which has also had a hair cut just with a lawnmower. And um, revealed by that cut are trails of all sorts of animals um, through what was long grass so I can see the sort of quite broad shambling path that's been made by a badger over the last weeks and months and I can also see just about the small really fine trails in between the stems that are left by things like voles and um, kestrels uh, can cheat they can see the UV end of the spectrum and small mammals tend to leave behind a little trail of urine when they run between the grass. And um, kestrels can see it, so they can see the habitual runs that are now revealed to me, around me. Before I go, I just wanted to say thank you. Um, we've just passed the halfway mark on this podcast. And Peter and I have had so much fun making it. We've learned so much, which is deeply pleasurable um, in its own right. But for both of us, it's just been a fantastic experience. So thank you so much for listening and for coming with us, well, coming with me on my walks. In the second half of the series, I've got all sorts of delights planned for you, including the seaside and the arable harvest. I'm also going to take you with me on a trip to try and see glowworms, which I'm well aware is probably the least suitable subject matter for audio, but never mind. If you're able to leave us a review, please do, because it will help other people who need this podcast to find it. Thank you, and join me again next week.